Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello there, my friends. This is Chris, your host, and this is the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-323. Got a calculator? What's 323 times 60? That's 19,380 minutes, 323 hours, 8.075 straight work weeks, 40-plus straight eight-hour workdays. That's a big pile of narrative. Isn't that funny? How you can just start doing something a session at a time and pretty soon it just adds up to a big pile of stuff. And that's without any compounding of the interest. So try this experiment. Try this at home. Every time you go for a run, put a penny in a bowl or maybe pick up a rock and put it on a pile at the trailhead and see what it looks like at the end of a year. That's the power of practice. That little bit adds up. That little handful of sand becomes a mountain to your perseverance. It's the same concept with time and money. Anything can be done through the daily or frequent little bits of practice. And I'm working through a book right now I'm reading. (laughs) And I don't find this book particularly entertaining, but I feel like I need to know the content. So I'm giving it 20 minutes a day at least. And just working my way through the book. Because a couple of things. One is you don't want to give up on stuff just because it's hard and not fun. Uh, and and you can get through anything or you can conquer anything a little bit at a time. I did the same thing when I wrote the Marathon BQ book last year. A little bit the same thing. But I laid out the chapters in a table of contents format. And then I worked on a chapter every day for a month. And just like that, it was done. I mean obviously it was bouncing around in my head so it came out pretty easily. But it took another five months of futzing around and editing, but I got it it done. And some people call this chunking, right? So take something that seems overwhelming and chunking it down into bite-sized bits that you can chew off every day or every once in a while. So, yeah, my training's been going very well, actually. I'm working in some consistent speed work and tempo and building up my distance. And it's not perfect. I'm still feeling out the paces, but it's progress, and I feel strong. And we love the cool, dry fall weather, Buddy and I, even though we've lost the sun. It's okay. I'm no stranger to running with a headlamp in the woods. 
It's a bit hard to stay on the trail, especially when all the leaves fall and obscure the ground. But that's why I have Buddy. He knows the way, and he can see in the dark better than I can. And he's doing very well. The cooler weather helps him. And I've also started him on a regimen of joint supplements, which seem to be surprisingly effective. He used to be able to barely get up the day after a six-miler in the trails, but now he's showing very little signs of stiffness at all. The product is called Glycoflex by a company called Vetra Science. I met the guy that runs their supply chain at a conference last month, and we got to talking, and it turns out he's a veteran marathoner from Vermont. And so we had a lot in common, and I sent him a copy of my book, and he sent me a bag of supplements for Buddy. See? See? See how this whole networking thing works out? Today, we have an awesome interview with Adam, the transplant runner. And I met Adam on Twitter, and I saw his Twitter handle, and I just asked a simple question. I said, are you really running with a heart transplant? And when he said yes, I knew I had to get him on the show. Super cool, super inspirational, super guy. I love this guy. I love his attitude. Reminds us that we really shouldn't be whining and that you can really do anything if you have the right attitude. In the first section, I'm going to talk about speed work again just because I've been doing more of it. It's it's top of my mind, right? So I've been doing it and remembering all the all the nuances and benefits firsthand. And in the second section, I'll give you some random advice on blogging. <laughs> so, you know, those little things every day, they count. I've been in the office the last couple of weeks. I don't have to go to the office. I could work out of my house, but I like the structure. I like the privacy. I like a place to do work. When I when I use the – so I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> when I use the restroom, it's a common restroom outside my office, you know, down the hall. I notice the paper towels. And specifically, I notice the paper towels on the ground next to the trash can, the trash receptacle. And I think the scenario is that some guy before me washed his hands, which is always a good habit after using the restroom. Don't get me wrong. But after using the restroom, he then takes this length of paper towel, dries his hands, and tosses it towards the trash. However, in this case, the used wad of toweling is off the mark and ends up on the floor. And in my head, I wonder why they didn't pick it up. Is there norm such that the effort to get it into the trash can is the same as actually getting it in the trash can? Is it somehow their way of sticking it to the man, leaving the towels on the floor? You know, I may have a crappy life, but at least I have the power to throw paper on the ground. Seems odd to me. In my passive-aggressive thinking, I'm thinking I should tape off some circles on the ground around the trash can with like 10 points, 15 points, 20 points, make it like a dartboard. But I don't know what other people are thinking, and I'm in no position to judge. I'm not saying this because it somehow makes me mad, but it does make me curious. Curious as to the thought process. You know, are they just too rushed? Is it somehow, you know, a health hazard once it's on the ground? You can't pick it up again. Uh, Would they leave it there if there was someone else in the room watching them? I don't know. Going back to our, our opening thought, 
if everyone left one towel on the ground, we'd all be up to our knickers in damp paper towels before long. And it seems to be contagious. As soon as there's one on the floor, that seems to lower sort of the threshold. And then there's there's many. The paper on the floor becomes a negative social proof. And this is the classic broken window syndrome that they always talk about. You can probably guess what I do. I pick up all the paper towels on the floor and put them in the trash. It's no extra effort for me, and I feel like I'm giving some sort of gift to civil society in the process. And you know what else I do? When I see the janitors, I say hello, and I thank them for doing what they do. Because the way I see it, when I pick up those towels and lay down those thank yous, I'm putting rocks in a pile. I'm putting handfuls of sand into a mountain. I'm putting bricks into a castle a castle of karma, and I don't want anything back. It's my gift to those AIM-challenged office workers and underappreciated sanitation engineers. It's karma, a little bit of karma every day. So how's your AIM? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. How speed work makes everything, everything else better, easier. I don't know why, but it does. What am I talking about now? What is all this ranting about speed work? Speed work this, speed work that. Get over it, Chris. No, I won't. It's important. (laughs) I know the majority of runners these days are just out there for the health and the experience. I know it's countercultural and idiotic for an old guy like me to be down at the track cutting out 800s and 1600s for no good reason at all. It's a downright public nuisance when I'm beating the crap out of a treadmill in the office gym, breathing like a wildebeest in heat and throwing off rooster tails of sweat while the public just wants to walk. When Oscar Wilde said, the position is ridiculous, the pleasure is fleeting, and the results are damnable, he wasn't talking about speed work, but he could have been. All I can tell you is that it makes a difference. I was out on my long run on Sunday with the club, and I could feel the strength and the pop of just a couple weeks of speed work in my legs. My resting pace has gotten faster in just a couple weeks. That's why it matters. It matters because it works. It also matters because very few people will do it, and that gives you the advantage. The vast majority of runners will whine about how they aren't fast and they just do it for fun and they get injured easily so they have to take it easy. They won't do the hard work. Therefore, if you do the hard work, you will have an advantage. Somewhere out there, someone is training when you are not. If you race him, he will win. Tom Fleming had that tape to his wall to remind him to do the hard work. If you have never done speed work, I can take 10 minutes off your 5K, 20 minutes off your 10K, 40 minutes off your marathon at least. Absolutely guaranteed. Running well in a race is not about shoes or dietary supplements or the latest exercise routine. It is and always has been about doing the work. And if you want to race fast, you have to train fast. Speed work specifically moves the needle on your pace. What do I mean by that? We all have a set point pace where we're comfortable. 
Speed work moves that set point. A body at rest will remain at rest until acted on by a force. Speed work is that force that moves your body off that resting point. You will feel it in your easy runs. The day after a speed session, I'll notice that my resting pace is noticeably faster. I've changed my body's assumptions. I've changed my body's frame of reference by injecting a counter force. That force is speed work. Like any other tool, speed work will only help so much. You'll get big gains starting about three weeks into a consistent practice, but the gains will peter out after a couple of months. Your body has a limit, and your pace can only get so much faster, and eventually you'll bump up against your natural speed limit. Being in speed shape is hard to maintain as well. It takes consistent practice to keep that edge. You quickly lose the speed, reset to a slower pace when you stop. You lose it frustratingly faster than you gained it. Even so, the residual effects of speed work are twofold. First, you will retain some of the pace and mechanical efficiency of the speed work practice. That's right. After you exert that force and move the system off its set point, it will never fully return. The system is changed forever. Second, and maybe more importantly, you'll retain the knowledge that you are capable of running fast. You'll know the art of the possible. This removes the mental barrier that most recreational runners have towards speed work and racing. And I know it's overwhelming, so I'm going to make it simple for you. One speed session a week. That's it. Just commit to throwing in some speed one session a week. I don't care if you're running 15 miles a week or 50 miles a week. How much? How fast? That's a hard question because I don't know your pace and your experience. Instead, I'll put it this way. You want to warm up well. Then accelerate to a pace that feels like a 4 on a scale of 1 to 5. I want you to hold that pace for 3 to 5 minutes. Recover. And then do it again four more times. Don't forget to cool down. Don't forget to stretch. And here's how it will unfold. Let me talk you through it. Depending on what kind of shape you're in, it will take 30 to 60 seconds for your body to figure out what you're doing as you ease into that interval. And I find I don't even start breathing heavy until I get a minute or more in. And then your body's going to figure out you're up to something awful and your mind and your body will panic. It will start to get hard. First, you'll notice your breathing getting hard and your heart working. Accept this and take full abdominal breaths and blow them out. Don't gasp or pant. Breathe deeply. Blow it out. Relax your form with breath. <sighs> Around a minute 30 to two minutes into the interval, your body and mind are going to make an effort to convince you to stop. You'll feel like you can't continue to hold the pace. You'll be struggling. Your brain will start saying things like, maybe today's not your day, or it's probably that you didn't eat a good enough breakfast. Anything your mind can think of that would give you a rational reason to stop. Then your subconscious will get in on the act and start manufacturing symptoms from your dinosaur brain. All of a sudden you feel like you're going to throw up or you have to go to the bathroom or like you're getting a cramp. And when this happens, you should smile. 
because this is the point right before your body and mind give up trying to stop you. If you push through this hard bit two to three minutes in, it actually gets easier. The discomfort and erroneous body signals will come in waves as your body and mind keep trying to get you to stop, but you will realize that you don't have to listen. This is a great lesson for you, for us. All those signals, all that discomfort is nothing more than a feeling. You can choose whether to accept those feelings or not. This is where you learn strength. With practice, it gets easier. Add that to the reasons everyone should do speed work. It teaches you mental and physical strength. It makes you a master of your machine. In practice, you're not battling through the pain or pushing or fighting. The masters don't fight. They accept. They acquiesce. They notice these signals for what they are, and then they relax into the effort. The final phase of your speed work interval is that home stretch. You've gotten through the hard discomfort in the middle. Now you just hold your form to the end. The last part is the easiest because you know you have it licked and the finish is in sight. As the seconds tick down on your speed interval, you'll be filled with the joy of having conquered the beasts of pain and fear. Then you jog for three minutes to recover. Then you do it again. And now for today's featured interview. Adam, you are the uh, transplant runner, and you're out of uh, the north of England. And uh, it's pretty interesting to me. I was sitting on Twitter and watching tweets go by, and I saw your username was the uh, transplant runner or something along those lines. I said, really? You're running with a heart transplant? Is, is that even a thing? Is that even possible? You know, because I can remember growing up and, and the first heart transplants happening, right? And those guys, those guys lasted for about a week and a half, right? Twelve days. Uh, yeah, so so I think we probably made some, some grand strides. And to be out doing running and sort of um, some, you know, not just a, a 5K jog around the block, uh, that's amazing to me. So when you, you know, give me the 200 words or less on on who you are and how you get to where where you are. <laughs> uh, cool. So I'm Adam, as, uh, as I've been introduced. I had a heart transplant in 1992 after five pretty huge heart surgeries growing up until that point. I was nine years old when I had my transplant. Um, I was basically born with four faults in my heart. They tried to fix it. It didn't work. They tried a couple of other things. It still didn't work. And then when I was nine years old, it got to the point where, you know, if I didn't have a transplant, I was going to die. So that was the only option. Um, I was always pretty fit through high school, um, played rugby, played football or soccer for you Americans listening, a um, little bit of basketball, and then I moved out to the States actually for two years in 2001, did a, did some skiing, um, wasn't really like a big runner at all, like I used to do sprinting at school, like 100 meters was fine for the way that my heart works, and then maybe... I don't know, four years ago, just thought my transplant's getting a little bit old, better start looking after myself a bit better and just thought, yeah, I'll go for a run. Ran on the roads for a couple of months and then decided, you know what, I don't like the roads. Um, a big sport where I live is fell running or mountain running. 
So yep, yep. I thought, take myself off into the hills, see how I like it, and then I was hooked from day one. Um, I've never looked back, really, like just increasing all the time. Um, you know, runs are getting longer, they're getting harder, tagging more mountains on every run. Um, and I just love it, like go out before work, after work, days off, as much as I can, really. So how, how, what kind of distance are you up to? Uh, so I'm running... Like day to day after work, we'll maybe do like between six and ten miles a day, and then on a day off, I'll do like sixteen to twenty-two at the minute, and that's over some pretty steep terrain as well. Like on a on a sixteen seventeen mile run, we'll cover eight or ten thousand feet of climbing, and then obviously the same in descent as well. So, are you doing any events like uh, mountain fell running events? So the way my heart works, um, there's no nerves attached to my heart, obviously, because it's been completely cut out and somebody else is putting. So I do racing because my heart doesn't kick in straight away. So like by the time my heart kicks in, everybody else is like three or four miles away. Uh, what I am training for is a, a challenge over here called the Bob Graham Round. It's 66 miles over 42 peaks. And you've got 24 hours to complete it, and it's got 28,000 feet of ascent and descent. Um, regular fell runners take about a year to train for it, so I've given myself 18 months. Uh, we're going to have a bash at it in 2017. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah I'll be the only I'll be the only organ transplant to ever finish it if I do it. So pretty cool. Going back to when you got your heart, did you get? your heart from somebody your age or I mean what was the sort of the the demographics of the the individual of the donor so the donor was three years older than me he was 12 years old um he was actually out on a paper round on his bike and he was hit by a bus um brain dead at the scene but his organs went on to save seven people I believe so pretty pretty gutsy of his parents at that age as well to say yeah, you can have his organs. Yeah, so that's a pretty good match for you. Yeah, I was a ninety-two percent match for his tissue and blood type, so I got oh. a, I got the best of the best. Because it, you know, I don't know a lot about this, but you know, from what I've seen on TV or whatever, it, it would seem that yeah, you know, there's a lot of drugs and you know anti-rejection medication and that sort of stuff. Like your body doesn't automatically just say, "Oh, great, a new heart," right? <laughs> no. So your body treats the new heart um, as an infection, basically, as a foreign body. So without the anti-rejection drugs, your immune system basically tries to kill it, um, which is what the drugs stop from happening. And so are you still on a regimen of those, even, you know, this many years later? Yep, and it's still monitored every six weeks to make sure that the doses are correct and that there's no rejection. Um, go to the hospital every three months for x-rays, ECGs, um, and then just local doctors every six weeks just for, like, blood pressure and blood tests. Wow. So, you know, I don't know about your doctor's that you have over there, but I know that your general doctors over here would say, you know, they'd basically say, don't push this too hard, right? You're lucky yeah. to be alive. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
my so my consultant at the transplant clinic sort of says oh you know what like calm down but secretly like i think he's pretty happy that i do it because he gets to see what we're actually capable of as well uh, yeah um, you know i'm i'm definitely pushing the boundaries of of what they thought was probably possible with a transplant especially a heart transplant um and I think although, like, his official line is, yeah, maybe cut it down a little bit, I think he's quite happy that I do it and that I'm healthy with it because it gets to show him that what can be achieved after transplant as well. So when you guys did this, you know, when you were nine years old, what kind of prognosis did they, you know, give to you and your parents that time? Were they thinking, you know, we're going to be talking to this guy 10 years from now or 20 years from now? Or They they said at the time, if I saw my 18th birthday, I'd be incredibly lucky. Um, and that, you know, I've just passed through my 23rd year of having the transplant. So I'm on wow. 14 years longer than they said that I would, I would possibly get. And, so <laughs> and now they say, like, because you look after it, because you do everything that you do... The medicines have changed over the years to be better for the rest of your body. They're saying now that really I shouldn't need another transplant. Wow, that's that's uh, it's quite a journey, Adam. Yeah, it's uh, it's not something I would wish on anybody else, but like you know, it is what it is. I don't take it for granted, and I just do the best I can. So when you when you're looking at this as you know a nine year old and saying, hey, I got uh, you know ten years to live, basically. <laughs> you know that must color your life and and I know attitudes have changed over the years but I'm thinking back then the, you probably had the same attitude from your doctors like take it easy don't go into sports don't play football don't play rugby you know yeah yeah it, well the school wouldn't let me play rugby in case I got hurt but I just ended up playing anyway because I was bored of standing watching um, you know there's no point having life-saving surgery and, and getting an organ off somebody else if you you know if you're not going to live your life the way that you actually want to live it um i don't think you'd be doing the service to the donor if you just sat at home and sort of didn't do anything with it do you know what i mean yeah and are they coming around to the point where they're saying you know what you're keeping this organ healthy and that's you know that's going to add to the to the longevity and 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 the fullness of life oh, you know definitely because like the the prognosis always was that at some point you would need another transplant because this one would wear out because of the stress because like your immune system is suppressed so you're getting more bugs but now they're turning around and saying actually in the last 10 years it hasn't deteriorated any if anything it's looking healthier than it did 10 years ago before i started running and now they're expecting that it should last me until i sort of die of old age or of something else so was it at any point where your body sort of um gets used to it or figures it out and 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 stops trying to reject it the only time it's ever happened is if a lot of the children that have organ transplants end up with leukemia as well and if they get a successful bone marrow transplant the new bone marrow accepts the heart as the original heart um, the problem with it is, once you've had a transplant, it's very difficult to survive chemotherapy. Right. Because um, you're already, your immune system's depleted so far anyway, that the, the actual chemotherapy ends up finishing off what's left. 
So that would make sense, though, because that's where the white blood cells uh, are uh, manufactured in the bone marrow. Yeah, right? so when they transplant the new bone marrow in, it doesn't know that the heart isn't the original heart. So it accepts yeah. it as a, as a full working body. So when you, you know, when you started running, I suppose you don't have anything to compare it to because um, your heart was always faulty. But, I mean, what does it feel like? You know, walk me through a, a 10K, um, what it feels like for you and what you think that's different than what most people do. Because like you said, you have no nerves in your heart, right? Yeah. So, but, but somehow, it, somehow it's getting electrical signals, or are the cells in the heart just figuring that stuff out for themselves? They figure it out. The best guess that the doctors come up with is that the heart figures it out from the amount of oxygen not in the blood when it's coming back through the heart and then heading back to the lungs. Um, so like in a 10K, my first 3 or 4K, I, I really struggle. My legs get heavy. I get a lot of lactic acid buildup in my legs because I just can't get the oxygen because my heart doesn't pick up from about 68 beats a minute like a regular runner. Like as soon as they right. start exercising, the brain tells the heart to pick it up. Right. Um, so, I mean, the biggest difference is um, I can run all day, but I run quite slowly. <laughs> but once I get going, like I'm pretty good for the rest of the day. Um, and it's, you know, you get used to it. Like I used to do quite a bit of swimming and like the first sort of 10 minutes in the pool, I actually looked like I was drowning from the outside probably. And then once it kind of kicks in and catches up, everything goes kind of back to normal. It's just that when you increase the pace, obviously it doesn't catch up the same as, as a regular person's does. Do you feel like um, since you're working it, it you know it might be uh, figuring it out better as time goes on? You know, Do you feel like it, it, it figures it out better you know, as you've gotten deeper into this program? Uh, not particularly. I think what changes is that the muscles get used to it more than the heart. And the muscles, you know, I can feel my legs are stronger at the start of a run and they're, they're kind of coping without that oxygen. And then when right. it does they, come, yeah. they just they feel fresher, quicker. Yeah, yeah, so your your body adapted to the uh, the lack of oxygen. So do you wear a heart rate monitor when you run? Uh, no, I've, I've worn it before, but when I plugged it back in, it was so berserk that even, like, a fully qualified <laughs> cardiologist probably couldn't have made sense of it. Because uh, it, you know, it sets off at resting, and then ten, fifteen minutes later, it shoots up into the sky. And then, if I, you know, on a really long descent where gravity is doing the work, it actually reduces itself back down to like sixty-eight, seventy beats a minute, and it thinks that you're back in resting mode because it's not getting worked as much. Right. Yeah, that's that's uh, so you have this sort of overshoot and undershoot on the oxygen content in your muscles that you have to deal with, right? Yeah, and and nine times out of ten, I feel better at the end of a run than I did for the first sort of twenty minutes. Uh, right. For but for fell running, that means you're going into a hill where you'd expect your heart rate to bump up from like zone three up into zone four or five. Yeah. There's going to be this lag yep. before your heart figures it out. You've got to be 200 meters up the hill before your heart figures it out. Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've developed a very good power hike for the hills <laughs> where I can keep turning my legs over at a slightly less intense pace, but I don't lose as much speed um, as previously. So on the on the really longer sense, like four or five miles, I'll run the easier bits and then I, I just put my head down and power hike the, the sort of steeper, more right. sort of effort-needed slope. Yeah. 
Yeah, because your calves and your quads must be screaming at you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, and you can just feel it, like, constantly until, you know, you sort of level out or the oxygen finally catches up, your heart rate catches up, and then, you know, you can start running again once once it sort of relaxes. Right, because your, your, st- your lungs are still going to figure it out. Your lungs are going to be working hard, yeah. right? Yeah, so you, you really, you know, you're but your heart isn't pushing oxygen. it around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're, the blood that gets there is absolutely full of oxygen. It's just not getting there quick enough. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 crazy. So, um, you know, growing up with this and and having this now and and being the way you are, I mean, you sound like a fairly positive guy, right? Yeah, um, uh, I, you know, I used to. I was chair of a charity over here in in England that was like a a social support network for families going through transplants. Because um, when I had my transplant, I mean, I was the 21st child in the U, I think in the world at that point to have it done. Um, and there was no support. Like the doctors and nurses did as much as they can. But then when you go home, you, you're completely left alone. And like... You know, I try to, you know, if I'm at the hospital, they'll say, oh, can you come and speak to such and such? They're waiting for a transplant. They want to see what happens afterwards. And, you know, I think I see people at clinic that kind of sit there and, you know, they mope around. They don't have a job. They don't get out of the house apart from to go to the hospital. I just think it's it's not a waste, but like a waste of what they've been given almost. Um, so, yeah, like, I'll, you know, you've got to be – there's no point – mithering about and worrying about it like just get on with it like everyone's day will come eventually there's no point sort of worrying about it coming any quicker or slower than anyone else but certainly it must have it must give you a different uh, sort of outlook on the uh you know the brevity of life right i mean like you said we're all gonna die yeah. right so it's coming but uh for those of us without something that happens to them or some you know some event like this we tend to think it's very far off. Um, so do you find this this helps you live your life to the fullest and in the moment? Oh, that, you know, yeah. You know, um, I mean, I, you know, before my transplant, they said, like, you know, if you make it the next eight weeks without a transplant, that'll be good going. So, like, two months' worth of, of life left when they told me that. Um, and, you know, if it comes tomorrow, it comes tomorrow. I'm not going to regret anything I've done I've done everything that I wanted to do you know I've never said oh you know what I'm not going to do that because I've had a transplant I've always said no, I'll just be the first guy to do it with a transplant <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah like death I've, you know I've seen I've, I've stared at it a few times it doesn't really scare me anymore but like you say it gives you a better appreciation for what you do have and what's right in front of you right yeah so you you appreciate the gifts in the true sense and you're in your case. Yeah, and like trivial things that people get upset about, you just find yourself going, well, really, it doesn't matter. Like it's it's pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it gives you a, a bit more grounding as well, I think. I think that's a... Yeah, you know, so you're in line behind somebody who's mad about their coffee being cold. You can say, well, you know, really? Yeah, like it could be worse. <laughs> you could have one leg or you could have been in a car crash or... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like the uh, the day to day trivialities tend to to fall by the wayside. And as it would be great if everybody lived that way, right? Yeah, and but didn't need somebody something to happen to them. Yeah, yeah. If you could do, if you could get to that point without having to have like major surgery and almost dying, that'd be nice. <laughs> that would, yeah, 
that's that's the key to it all. So you're going to write a book, or have you already written a book? No, I've I've made numerous attempts at starting one, and then I get into it. And I'm like, you know what? Nobody wants to read this, and it just gets left behind. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just like for the first sort of ten years, it's just like oh. Then I felt better. Then I had another operation. Then I felt better, and then I had another operation. And, you know, it's just never-ending. It's just like, come on, when's this guy going to start having a decent life type thing? <laughs> yeah, but you're, you've you've uh, you've gotten lucky here. So so when you got this transplant, you said you're like the 21st person to get this? The 21st so, child, yeah. 21st child, because I do remember back in the, you know, I'm I'm pretty old, so I do remember back, I remember the first heart transplants. Yeah, and how those guys were basically, you know, it made the news, but they lived for like, you know, seven days. Yeah, right. Because they didn't realize how the body would react to it at that point. You yeah, know, they didn't. So. And they didn't understand the immune system would work the way it worked. They didn't have the medicines in place to counteract it. Um, so yeah, like really, in the last sort of forty, fifty years since the first one. The, the bounds in medical science have, have definitely helped. So when they're when they're looking at you and all you do, they're probably not super worried about a heart attack. They're they're just worried about the heart getting um, unhealthy, right, or diseased, right? Yeah, because of uh, all the drugs and stuff. Yeah, because when because obviously you've got no immune system because it's suppressed, so you are more susceptible to picking up more bugs and, and viruses and things like that. Um, it's actually worse for lung transplant recipients because they're breathing in as well, and obviously it goes everything they breathe in goes straight to the lungs, so they tend to suffer more with post transplant illnesses. Huh. Yeah, and the heart has some specific viruses that can get in there yeah. that they always talk about, right? They talk about a lot of the um, the dental viruses. Yeah, so dental health is a big one on their on their watch list. Um, you know, they've got to make sure that you know you're looking after your gums, especially like gum disease is directly linked to heart disease. So you know you've got to you've got to look after your your mouth as well, as it were. Well, this is amazing, Adam. I'm really happy that I got to talk to you. This is fascinating. Ah, it's been good. My first ever podcast. <laughs> first ever podcast. Well, you're my first ever heart transplant. <laughs> well, hopefully I'll uh, I'll get a few others to think, yeah, I can do that, and then hopefully you'll be able to interview another one and get their thoughts. Yeah, but then you're going to have to write that book, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think if I, if I do the Bob Graham, then I've got a big finish for it, and then, uh, you know, it all leads up to something very positive. Uh, see now you're doing that thing where you're you're setting that uh, if I do this then I'll do this so you're you're uh, <laughs> you should you my... should know better you should know better than that <laughs> <laughs> I'm too busy running to write a book it's wasted time <laughs> <laughs> so what you do is you uh, you go online and find some nice um, eloquent person in India or Pakistan to ghostwrite it for you yeah that's how you do it. Yeah, I don't think they want to traipse through the entire room of my medical records to get all the juicy bits out there. Yeah, well, you know, somebody's got to do it. They can do it. <laughs> all right, man. I'll, I'll let you get back to your dinner, and uh, and hopefully you're not uh, you're not having um, having uh, drinks with your your friend there. I'm I'm sure there's a lot of restrictions on what you can eat and drink, right? Uh, it's all right though, because uh, spirits are better for you than uh, beer, and I'm a bit of a Jack Daniels fan, so the doctors don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> well, where you're living, I'm I'm 
pretty sure you have access to some better whiskey than Jack Daniels. Yeah, I've got to finish the Jack Daniels off to be in the mood for whiskey, though, so it's, uh, it's a tale of two halves. <laughs> well, well, at least you're not smoking Marlboros. No, def- no, 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 definitely no cigarettes. Uh, yeah, and so the, do they um, Do they keep you on a diet, too, that they tell you to stay off the fats or that kind of stuff? They have a diet sheet, but because I run so much, I pretty much can get away with it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so the cholesterol is not isn't going to be what takes you down. No, definitely not. Yeah. No. Yeah. Falling off the falling off the side of a mountain will be the way to go. I think. Well, that's a good way to go, yeah. my friend. Yep. <laughs> if you're going to go, go that way. Yeah, at least I'll be smiling. Exactly. All right, I'll let you get back to dinner. No Thanks worries. for talking. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. Me on. Cheers. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. How to get started on a blog post habit. Getting started and making a habit out of blogging or making blog blogging itself a habit. I had a conversation with someone this week who wanted to start a blog or more specifically a consistent blogging routine or habit. And it never occurred to me that blogging could be hard. I've written hundreds if not thousands of what could be considered blog posts, the emergence of blogs as an actual thing that people do was a godsend for people like me. Otherwise, we would be writing in a journal that would sit in the corner bookshelf gathering dust, or maybe our work would be condemned to the pages in a sad loose-leaf notebook containing the weak expositions of a thousand failed novel ideas. But writing is easy for me. But This person I was chatting with could not bring themselves to take pen to paper or pinky to pixel. Why? What's the barrier? I think one big barrier is that we put the written blog post on a pedestal. We expect too much. We think people will judge our work. The expectation of being judged and not measuring up scares us into inaction. And guess what? You don't get to judge what's good and worthy. The world gets to do that. If you want to write, there's really only one responsibility, to write. Nabokov said this as he was complaining about Hemingway's work ethic. He said, writers write. That's it. Simple. You aren't in charge of judging the quality of your work. You are only responsible for getting it out. That's it. Get it out into the world, and you will be surprised at what resonates and what doesn't. My most clicked, most viewed, most whatever post was a piece I wrote called The Difference Between Running and Jogging. Was it a tour de force of the written word? No, it was something I dashed off in a peevish mood one afternoon. And why did it resonate? Probably because there's conflict built into the title. It's got a good hook. There are hundreds of other thoughtful posts that I'm quite proud of and spent hours fretting over that no one cared about. That's just the way it is. I don't get to judge. I get to create. The lesson for you and my friend is that don't let worry over being judged or not having anything worthy to say stop you from producing content. Your job is to produce. Since you can't control the judgment, you're free to create without expectation. Once you're through this knothole of expectation, you can start blogging. Start with a cadence. You can do it once a week or once a day. It doesn't matter, but it should be consistent. 
there should be some sort of deadline or frequency of production that you commit to. Having a set cadence like I will publish a blog post every Friday will force you to make it a habit. One thing that's great fun is to commit to publishing a blog post every day for a month and tell everyone, commit to it, go public. This is a great way to jumpstart your blogging habit. It's harder than it sounds. It makes for some great blog posts when the immediacy of the requirement forces you to post without overthinking. That's great, Chris, you say as you roll your eyes at me like a 14-year-old. But how do I write a blog post? Ah, you want some practical tips, eh? First, the world has gotten very bite-sized and chunky as people's attention spans shrink like my wife's shirts when I use the hot water setting on the washing machine, you don't need to write War and Peace in a blog. Yes, I know there are famous bloggers that write these detailed 10,000-word posts, but you don't have to. Frankly, I don't have time to read a 10,000-word post. Shoot for 1,500 words. 1,500 words is a page and a half in the default word settings. I can knock out a 1,500-word post in about an hour or less, depending on how well-formed the idea is when I start writing. If you're attempting to publish a blog every day, you can even drop it to 500 words. Think about how easy 500 words is. That's a half a page of content. That's four paragraphs. That's only 10 to 12 good sentences. Anyone can come up with 10 to 12 sentences. My point is... Make the production and publishing of the content a consistent habit and cadence. Elevate the act of publishing above the need for volume and quantity. Get your brain wrapped around that reshuffling of priorities and you'll be fine. But Chris, how do I find ideas? Surprisingly enough, writing is just another muscle. Once you start forcing out the content, you will see ideas everywhere. The habit will create the content. If you need to seed ideas when you're getting started, here's a method I use. I like to write in the morning, but it's not mandatory. I can write almost anywhere, almost any time, because my writing muscle is well used. When I write in the morning, I first sit at my desk, I put my headphones in, and I listen to five minutes of guided meditation, breathing meditation. This makes my mind open to creativity. I'll typically leave the headphones in, and depending on the seriousness of what I have to write, I'll either spin up some meditation music, some classical music, or one of my playlists of ska, punk rock, Grateful Dead, or whatever I happen to be in the mood for. Then I'll read. I'll either Google the phrase or topic I'm considering, or I'll just page through one of the books I'm currently reading. In a couple minutes of reading, I'll have plenty of thoughts to corral under the page. Reading is the key to writing. For you, it might be a newspaper or an industrial journal. I would be careful with internet-based reading because before you know it, it will be three hours later and you'll be watching YouTube videos of cats without having written anything. Usually, the words flow. But if I'm stuck or feeling a bit undisciplined... I'll set the timer on my phone for 20 minutes, and then I'll just commit to write without expectations for 20 minutes and not get distracted by any other procrastination. And when that timer goes off, I'm typically deep into my post and on a roll. 
So you read to find a topic, and then you structure your post around that topic. And one of the best things to write about is yourself. This is called telling a story. When you tell a story, it has a three-part flow, exposition, challenge, and resolution. This is nothing new. We've been doing this for 4,000 years. First, there's the exposition. Exposition is where you set up the story. I was walking down the street yesterday, looking in store windows, and saw the most amazing display. And then there is the meat of the story. This is where there is some sort of challenge or conflict. It started pouring down rain, and I tried to get into the store, but the door was locked. The clerk was in there, but was ignoring me. And then there is the resolution. Finally, they let me in after I was pounding on the door. I was going to yell at them for ignoring me, but in the ensuing conversation, I realized the store was brand new and wasn't even opening for another week. There were packing crates everywhere. See? See how that works? I just totally made that up. I could take that simple story and embellish it so that you would actually feel like you're in the story. When you flesh out your story, whether it's about you or someone else, really paint that picture. What are the sounds? What are the smells? What else is going on? How are the characters acting? The alleyway was dark and smelled like a dead raccoon. That puts you in the story. Her face scrunched up like she had just bitten into a dead frog. Yeah, I've, I've seen a face like that. And since blogs are bite-sized by nature, it's good to start with a hook. A hook is a statement or question that kicks off the post and draws people in. I was wondering if I was going to lose the toe. Yeah, how about that? Your headline can be a hook. Ask a question. Is Netflix the devil's handiwork? You don't have to use the strict story form, but loosely you still need to follow that three-part flow. You set it up by explaining what you're going to talk about, why we care, what the expectations of the posts are. Then in the middle section, you expand on the thought or the theme. And finally, you need to exit the blog post with a summary or conclusion of some sort. One of the best ways to exit a blog post is to come to a conclusion and then ask a question. This post is rapidly approaching 1,500 words, and I think that's an excellent size for a post. Don't you? Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, thank you for your continued attendance. I appreciate it. Thank you. We have been transplanted to the end of episode 4-323. See what I did there? So my training, like I said, it's going great. I laid low for the month of uh, September with all the travel, but I started working in some speed work. I let Coach have a break just to, and just to squelch any rumors. I'm not fighting with Coach or anything dramatic like that. I'm just experimenting with some, some more intensity to see how my body responds. And if we add up all the time I took off for plantar fasciitis and the AFib, I haven't been able to get a decent training cycle in since 2011. So it's been almost four years. And the first thing I notice is that my paces are off by a full 30 seconds a mile from where I used to be. And some of that is due to age, but a lot of it is just being out of practice. The speed work feels hard and it feels foreign to my body. And I'm like three weeks into it now and I'm starting to see the results, which is what I would expect. I started with five days a week to see if my body would be able to handle five days a week and still recover. Sunday long, Monday recovery, 
typically on the Monday, I'm going to do a spin, not a run. Tuesday, speed. Wednesday, recovery run. Thursday, tempo. Friday, recovery run. And Saturday, totally off to do chores around the house. So that's six days, but it's really five days of running. And this puts me in the the mid-30s in terms of mileage. And as I ramp up, it'll get me up into the 50s. Uh, 50 mile weeks, which is uh, which is a good good load for me if I can hold that, and I make sure to really focus on doing the stretching, the warm up, the cool down, and the and the maintenance core work just to see if I can get ahead of that, get ahead of those injuries. Nothing really hurt when I started doing this, except the plantar fasciitis flared up at the end of uh, the first hard week, and I thought I was toast. I went into full on. Injury death spiral. Oh my God, plantar fasciitis. I'll never run again. And of course, this was last week, so I can talk about it now. I'm over the emotional part of it. Uh, I ran that, like I said, I ran Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And after Friday's run, it was super sore. It was full on inflamed. So I got the splint on, you know, the night splint for sleeping. I took Saturday off. I taped my foot for my Sunday long run, and it got it came under control. So I think I can control it. It's back back under control. I think I solved the problem, though. I think I isolated the problem, which was I was wearing a pair of old uh, A6 E33s, these old basic neutral cushion shoes, to just because I wanted to get something that was a little more responsive to get a better feel for the track when I was doing my speed work. And I don't keep very good track of mileage in shoes, but I remember I wore these shoes for two marathons at least <laughs> over a year ago. So they're probably toast. I think I've I found the suspect or the uh, the cause of my plantar fasciitis. I got to stay out of those. But we'll keep an eye on it. I can always swap out the Friday recovery run or even the Wednesday recovery run with a recovery spin instead. Uh, it's not as specific, but it'll keep the conditioning up. So this Sunday, I'll be volunteering at two local races, the Bay State Marathon in the morning and the Groton Town Forest Trail Race in the afternoon. And if you're running either of those, say hi. I'll be at the seven-mile water stop at Bay State just before the bridge, like we always are. So I was coming back from getting my getting tires on my Camry this past weekend on Saturday, and I was sitting in a long line of cars at a red light, and I did what we all do at red lights. I checked my phone. And of course, the next thing I know, there's a blaring of a horn, and the guy behind me is freaking out because I let a 20-foot gap expand in front of me. And I look in the rearview mirror, and this guy is swearing at me and waving his hands, and he is quite apoplectic. And my first reaction was to give him a big passive-aggressive smile and wave. But I also felt that, you know, that drip of adrenaline as my dinosaur brain prepares for a fight. You know, you just can't help it. I'm a guy. But as I thought about it some more, I wondered what was so wrong with this guy's life that he went off the deep end over 20 feet of pavement. And I, I just wanted to say to him, you know, it's okay, man. It's okay. It's just not that it's just not that important, man. But I'm as guilty as the next guy. You know, it, it gets me super stressed out to get stuck in traffic too. And even though I know it has nothing to do with the traffic, it's me getting stressed out because of the way I think about traffic and the way I think about time. And I think time is scarce. That's the way I think about time. 
and in my mind, I can only be successful if I get stuff done in the time I have. And how often do we think about time this way? I don't have enough time. I don't want to waste time. Is it worth my time? And my revelation this week is that this is all scarcity thinking. And as much as I talk about abundance, I think in terms of scarcity when it comes to time. And that is a disconnect between my thoughts and my beliefs. That's an incongruence between belief in abundance and thought of scarcity. And I wonder if you're not doing the same thing. What if we thought of time as abundant? How would that change the way we approached adversity? What abundance could that bring into our lives? And the next time you're running late and you lean on the horn, I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three.